Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Big week in the trillion-dollar business of sports. The NBA-NHL playoffs mercifully coming to an end. Golf's second major over, ready for the American and National League in the All-Star Game in Miami. And football just around the corner. A lot of big issues. And to attack a lot of those issues, sports guru and digital editor Amy Tenery. How's that? Yeah, that's great. I'm I'm fantastic. Well, speaking of golf, one of the biggest issues this week is 27-year-old Brooks Kepka wins the U.S. Open, his brand about to soar higher than one of his incredibly long drives. And for a guy who hits the ball maybe 250 off the tee, uh, he hits it 320, and I can only aspire to those extra 70 yards. You understand his greatness. He's a Florida native, Florida State standout, very athletically gifted family he comes from. And he's won one, only one other event on the PGA Tour and is in a large pack of talented 20-something golfers who, as the Washington Post puts it, are at the age they got full-blown Tiger Slam Eldrick Woods at their most impressionable age. Currently, he's ranked number 22. Kepka will be setting his own moving day in the coming weeks. His ranking improves. $2.1 million winners Percy receives is a big deal. His endorsers include Nike, Michelob, Ultra, Pelocity. Okay, that's great. But the other issue is Jupiter neighbor, Ricky Fowler, continues to be probably the richest endorser never to have won a major. And everybody's talking about how he needs to win and he fell apart on Sunday. Amy, what do you think of all this? Well, yeah, I mean, as, as you point out, there's so many of these 20-something guys who are all sort of jockeying to be the next, the next big, big phenom, Jordan Spieth, Roy McIlroy, and then, of, of course, Ricky Fowler. As we have noted many times, while I am a sports guru, I am not a golf guru, but I did follow this tournament pretty closely. And, um, you know, Ricky came in disappointing fifth. He, he tied in fifth place. And I was, I was sort of looking at some of the, the fallout online, and People were just ripping into him for this disappointing finish, uh, saying that he spends too much time on social media, that he's too focused on the celebrity aspect of it. As you may know, he has a wildly popular Snapchat account. He's got um, you know hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter. Um, it reminded me a little bit of some of the criticism we saw with Andy Roddick years ago, sort of that... Um, that that sense that he has all this potential, but he can't follow through on it. Do you think this kind of criticism against Fowler is is fair? Or uh, and and if you do think it's fair, what does he need to do next to kind of shake off those critics? You're just a babe, but you don't remember years ago in the '70s. I know that's a long time ago, but Muhammad Ali on his way out fought a Japanese kickboxer by the name of Asao Aoki, and everybody accused him of being a gimmick fighter, <laughs> and that's exactly what that was. The big difference here is McGregor has earned the accolades at the top of his sport, as has Mayweather. Like it or not, he's at the top of his sport. The question is, is this two sports that ought to be put together? And everybody's talking about how it's not. One is boxing, and one is this new UFC, and they shouldn't meet. And so I don't think it's a gimmick as much as it's a one-off special event, maybe kind of like 
Evil Knievel jumping the Snake River Canyon and everybody hope he falls about 50 yards short. Absolutely. And I mean, and as you, I mean, you point out, he's living in that kind of Jupiter bubble. So I'm sure he's not only feeling the pressure from outside news media and social media, but of course, as he pointed out, in, in this very insular community of high, high level golf players. And no wonder you're so into golf. You, you live near all of them, apparently. <laughs> yeah, well, and I was saying earlier, Texas Chainsaw Massacre meeting happy days. It doesn't always work out, I suspect. I suspect. Probably right. So let's turn to happier stuff, by the way, which is how facilities in sports can actually do social good. A lot of discussion about public money and you should you build them. This is not that. Uh, uh, Hunter Green, drafted by the Cincinnati Reds, number two, Major League Baseball. He comes out of MLB's Baseball's Urban Youth Academy in Compton, California, the highest ranking player ever drafted as an alumnus from this Urban Youth Academy program. The guy throws a fastball at 102 miles an hour, but more important for Rob Manfred, who is the commissioner, he says this is a time to celebrate that we're embracing the idea of facilities as they create athletes, more baseball players, African-American baseball players, better players, inner city, and it's a validation of doing the right thing. Kind of kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it, it definitely is, and obviously... This kid, he's 17 years old, and he's he's throwing a 102-mile fastball. I mean, that's just that's bonkers. So it, he really is, I think, tangible evidence that this program is a success. And I, I, I hope that he can be emblematic of the success that, that this program has had. And, and maybe the MLB will continue to expand and have more academies like this, because I think it's absolutely fantastic. Well, and the final point about this is, as we saw in the wake of last week's uh, you know, tragic congressional baseball game shooting, it's still firmly America's pastime in spirit, if not in actual ticket sales and ratings. And diversity, as Green represents, remains a baseball cornerstone, and anything to go into the inner city and increase that is a good thing. And, you know, the U.S. Conference of Mayors next week has its national meetings in Miami Beach. There is a sports Uh, advisory group that I'm involved in, and one of the things we're going to talk about a lot is this Baseball Urban Youth Academy. Another thing we're talking about is this new project in Oklahoma City called Fields and Futures. It's partnered with the Oklahoma City Public School System, 42 athletic fields, 20 down, 22 to go. Cal Ripken Foundation is a partnership partner that's building some of these, but also Delaware Life and its president, Dan Tower, spends a million five as a matching gift plus a seven-figure marketing plan. More important, the empirical numbers, Oklahoma City increased grades, increased attendance, graduation rates improving at the schools that were studied with fields that were already built, which is really a positive development, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is. And in a lot of ways, um, it, this area benefits by the fact that the women's uh, softball team just, you know, at University of Oklahoma won their fourth college women's World Series there. So in a lot of ways, to me, they're kind of like they're, they're like the Yukon of of women's softball. They're just such a powerhouse. And having that kind of name behind these projects is going to make it all the more easy for them to to push these programs forward. So I think that's great. You know, segueing into um Notre Dame and, and their college athletics. We we uh, are you, by the way are you a, are you a little bit of a of a Notre Dame fan because you either love them or hate them. I I have an irrational hatred of the movie Rudy. 
I can get into it with you sometime over over some drinks. I hate that movie. So I, it's hard for me to like Notre Dame, to be honest with you. But uh, but I, I do have a couple of friends who went to school there, and they're they're wonderful people. So I'll say for their sakes, they don't get mad at me later that, yes, well, Notre Dame's Well, good. Right. Boy, what a segue. So listen, Jack Swarbrick, who is the athletic director at Notre Dame in his ninth year there, he was a magna cum graduate of Stanford Law School. He was a partner at Baker and Daniels. He has revolutionized the athletic department at Notre Dame. A lot of issues relative to power conferences, play for play, pay, what it's like being independent. And I guarantee you, Jack, I didn't vouch for what Amy Tenery just said as far as Rudy is concerned. <laughs> I like that movie. Jack Swarbrick did too, and here he is. Sloan MIT Sports Analytics Conference, we've covered a number of different things from startups to non-startups, from television to uh, other kind of entities, and there's nobody who does more of that kind of diversity than an athletic director, and an athletic director who has some leverage and credibility in the industry because he's got a wonderful brand, a partner in a law firm for a number of years, an Indiana, Indiana guy, uh, Stanford Law School, Jack Swarbrick, how's that for a kind of snapshot of what you do and how you do it? More than I deserve. Thank you. It's great Clearly to be not with more you. Than Thank you very much for this. So, give us just your top-down assessment of where college athletics is today. Don't have enough time, but let's do it. Yeah, it's um, you know, it is in a period of change that is going to continue. Um, uh, it manifests itself in conference realignment, which will be stable for a while now. But we've got big issues with regard to the relationship between the student who's an athlete and the university. We've got commercial rights issues. Uh, we've got health and safety issues, whether it's the concussions or other things. So uh, th there is so much going on in the industry, and it will continue to change. For the better? I think so. Yeah, I think uh, from my perspective, I, I, I might accept a little bit of conference realignment because I think we've lost some of the some of the commonality that, that made, right. makes conferences strong. But in other matters, I think this, I think the sports are administered in a much safer and healthier way. I think the benefits extended to the students are more and and and, and better suited to their needs. Um, I think our fans are better served today than they were. So I, I feel good about a lot of the changes. So. Power Five, others, the media always pitch the two against each other, not deserved. First of all, are you in a position of, uh, your interests are, are somewhat aligned, but in many ways very different. Can you take on the informal role of broker, an honest broker between all the conferences? You have a, you have a very interesting perspective to bring to the table. Well, we, a, a lot of us play roles in that, but I think yeah. it is important to promote the dialogue and, and make sure we're sharing information and ideas. I have served as the chairman of LEAD One, the D1A Athletic Directors Association, for two years now and have tried to use that platform for that. I'm the only AD on the conference, uh, uh, the college football playoff management committee, so I try and be a liaison to, to schools that way. So, and, and you know, I'm not alone in that regard, uh, but, but I think it's very important to do that. I guess more dialogue's more important than ever, as you said, as college sports and college football goes through a, uh, a time of unprecedented change. Oh, it is, it is. Um, 
and, and, and in all directions. We've got to talk to our administrations on campus effectively. Yeah. We've got to talk to each other effectively. We've got to keep our students informed and engaged, our coaches and our fans. Uh, the, the one thing about this job, it has an unusual number of constituents, um, more so yeah. than a professional sports franchise does. Right, and, and, and they come from a, a many different perspectives, at least with a pro sports franchise, there are some commonalities attached to oh, it. Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, right. you know, there, there are issues unique to being part of a university that, that, you know, you have to, you know, communicate with faculty and deans and, and the president of the university. Um, that there's, no, there's no replica of that in pro sports. So tell us about, from a business perspective, sports business show, international audience, uh, the responsibilities the athletic director's responsibilities are effectively bottom line, but you're part psychiatrist, part politician, obviously part lawyer. Uh, how, do the, how, do the, how does that all coalesce? Well, what's, what's so unique about our jobs is, and, and in contrast to virtually any other sport enterprise, is we have 26 teams in my case, yeah, right. 750 athletes, yeah. and male, female. And so you have very different issues across sports and across the various student groups. And that's what creates the biggest challenge, is figuring out how to manage that, how to allocate your resources in support of it. And so you try and do that by having systems that allow you to manage the individual sports effectively, but also communicate across the sports effectively. How does Notre Dame manage to negotiate so uh, adroitly? Maybe you're always in a different risk position than other people. You stay independent in football. You don't for other conferences. Uh, you do have the leverage to be able to set your own terms in some ways. Some people view you as an outlier. Others people view you as an opinion leader. How do you feel about all that? Well, the Notre, uh, the, the, what Notre Dame stands for and the Notre Dame brand provides that platform for me as, yeah. a, as a businessman. And uh, it's nothing I'm doing. It's, it's this remarkable university and the brand it's built over time. Football independence is incredibly important to us from a university perspective. From a football perspective, we'd be better off yeah. probably competitively being in a conference. But it's used to promote the university. Right. So when we play a game in Dublin or in Yankee Stadium or in Fenway Park, that's all about bringing the university to those cities. And, and, and it is because of that. It's because we don't look at it through a football prism we are so committed to that model and we've been able to do it and uh, it, it, it is unique but it, it you know it creates a nice business incubator right we're our own little lab yeah because of that independence and we get to make some interesting decisions let's just pick a geographical distribution area Reuters International but we also are doing this for a Boston audience uh, as well um, in many ways, Notre Dame is, is, a, is, is Boston's team. Boston College is Boston's team, but you invade Fenway, and it's your, it's your market as well. It was a remarkable weekend. We love playing in, in iconic venues, and there aren't many that are more iconic than, than, than Fenway Park. And that was a magical weekend for us. We, we filled the place, a lot, of, a lot of passionate fans supporting us, and uh, that's what we want to do with football. Right? We're, we're in California every year for a game. Right. We get to New York about every other year. We'll be in Chicago regularly. Uh, again, it's about promoting the university and using football to do it. Uh, how do you take your, your brand, you, you clearly are in Dublin, you're in Ireland, etc. How do you take your brand internationally and stay ahead of uh, other schools and other conferences? I know Larry Scott wants to be 
uh, China's commissioner right, as right, well. So, right. so I, how do you meet the challenge? Well, I think I think there there are several things you have to do. One is you have to use the university's assets that exist. So we look to where we have campuses and already have a presence, and so that helps. Two, you want to leverage your partners. So in our case, you talk with Under Armour about your strategies for, for being international and what they're doing. Um, you talk to NBC about international distribution and what they're doing. So uh, we've got great partners and you have to be really focused on working with them. Let's talk a f just a few minutes about issues that affect college football generally. Pay for play, compensation, where is that all going? Yeah, obviously that's 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 an issue which is at the forefront of the discussion about college athletics today. Um, you know, I think where it's going is we will continue to look for ways to provide appropriate additional benefits to our students. For me, the the, the focus ought to be how can we maintain the relationship as one of being between student and university, not employer-employee, right. but provide appropriate benefits for the student-athletes. So my, my measure of that is to look at the questions we face and say, how do we resolve this for a student who's not an athlete, and how do we for a student who is an athlete? And we've got to be very careful about drawing distinctions there. And so, for example, the student who's not an athlete can exploit their name, image, or likeness, right? They can, if they're a musician, they can go right. to the club and play right. or yeah. give a music well lesson. Well, how can we provide comparable opportunities to students who are athletes without changing the model, without turning them into somebody who's not a student? And, and I think those are the sorts of things we have to figure out going forward. Has the train left the station because the lawyers, the litigators are getting in the middle of that too? Is there an opportunity for some reasonable compromise? There's still an opportunity, but we better, we better take on the issues, right? We, or they will be dictated to us. Uh, you know, I think... Because as a lawyer, we know what lawyers can do to deal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, we had a good example with the cost of attendance, yeah. right? That, that, was, that, was, that was a decision that if you, if you tried to treat students equally, whether they were athletes or not, you never would have adopted the rule. Right. It, was, it was an antitrust case waiting to happen. We gotta be smarter than that. We gotta, we gotta look at these things and, and get out in front of these issues or they'll get dictated to us. You have resources, but yet I suspect one of the things that we all are a little bit worried about, we in the in, in, broadly defined, the recruiting war for high school players becoming college players because they get more benefits and emoluments than others. How do you how do we how do you deal with all of those issues, uh, and yet acknowledge that there are certain cost of attendance issues as well? Are there are there ways to deal with that issue? Well, yes. I mean, we can. I, I, I'm confident we can. On the recruiting front, we yeah. have two unique problems. One is um, competitive forces are driving the recruitment younger and younger and younger. It's not good for the youngster, and it's not good for the university. You know, talking to a 15-year-old about where yeah. they're going to go to college right. isn't helpful. Right. Um, and but it so, happens oh, all it, the time. It's the norm, right? Norm. Especially yeah. in the Olympic sports. Right. Um, and, and so we've, we've, got to, we've got to get our arms around that. The other really unique business dynamic for us is, by rule, we can't talk publicly about those students, those prospective students, or the process, right? We can't comment right. on a prospective right. student-athlete. So we've taken uh, an area of great interest to our fans and transferred it over to third parties who, who build whole, whole businesses yeah. about reporting on that. Right. I, I think we have to think about that. 
college football playoff, the rumor is that we're going to have uh, um, 72 teams in the playoffs and the first uh, 14 get buys in the first round. Where, where, where's that going? That'd be interesting. There is, there is zero momentum right now yeah. for expanding it. Uh, right. We're really pleased with, with how it works, what the model's been, the value it provides to fans, the interest in who gets in and who doesn't get in. It, it, it maintains value at the conference championships, which is great. It keeps value in the other bowl games. I, I think it took us three years, but we got to the right model, and there's no interest in changing it. Title IX, impact on women's sports, it's a balancing act for you, clearly. It is. And the non-revenue producing sports, let's call them, and how you have to deal with them every day. Yeah, it is. Now, it's a good, it's a good problem to have. I think Title IX, the impact of Title IX in American sports has been phenomenal. It's been great. Um, but you have to you have to balance it. You and and, and the, the key to the balance is is the experience the same for the student, right? Are you providing similar resources? Are they having the same opportunities? And I'm I'm really proud of our ability to do that. We have great success in our women's sports. Our women's basketball team has you know been in five Final Fours in the past eight years. Women's soccer national championship. Women's fencing program, lacrosse competes for the national championship. So it's a, it's a good problem to have. Uh, you've been at this for a long time. What is the most surprising thing that you didn't anticipate when you first took this job that's happened to you or happening as part of this process? The impact of social media. Um, now part of it is my I came into this job as it was in a sense, so right. it, I'm sort of growing with it a little bit. but. It's, it's very challenging for us because um, things are said about our students that are simply not true. Yeah. Some cases are slanderous, mean-spirited, and, and we don't have an effective way to deal with that. Does it help you that it's an issue that the whole world has to deal with? Not yeah, exactly, Notre Dame? exactly. No, right. the entire world, yeah. and, and it's certainly not limited to sports. Our political yeah. arena right. is, yeah. is poisoned right. with it right, right. now. Yeah. But it's... Uh, I just feel different when, because I'm dealing with 18 to 22 year olds, right. and uh, it's it's they just because someone has a talent and they uh, exercise that talent in college as a football or basketball player shouldn't make them open game. Right. Uh, and the flip side is, do your coaches do a good enough job in your estimation of? monitoring or incentivizing your athletes to behave to a certain standard relative to social media, or should it be the coaches? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, they, they, they pay attention to it. I pay attention to it. But I want I want our students or athletes to have the same freedom as our other students yeah, do. Yeah, well put. And I don't want special rules for them on social media. We educate them a lot. We talk to them about the risks. We show them examples of bad bad behavior. But frankly, I'm very comfortable with their behavior. It's, it's the people talking about them yeah. that I'm not comfortable with. I think so. What does Jack Swarbrick do five years from now, and what's the program look like, and are they two different intersections? Are you out doing something else, or what? I hope I'm at a beach somewhere. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think the program will, will remain much as it is now. There'll be changes in the industry for sure, but a well-rounded program, 26 sports, great students who, who represent Notre Dame well and a high level of competitive success. The challenges of maintaining competitive success will grow, but I think our fan base is passionate about it and our university understands the benefit of it. So as a lawyer who actually does some teaching and have the benefits of knowing Ray Anderson, Fred Glass, I think there are way too many lawyers as athletic directors. What do you think? <laughs> 
those other guys shouldn't be in the business. No, Fred and I were Fred and I were partners. Yeah, uh, I realize. Yeah. And by the way, he. He's Indiana, so they're, they were partners in the same law firm, and they've taken over between, I don't know about Purdue and others, but, uh, well, Purdue, there's a, a politician involved in the entire world, but between uh, uh, Fred at Indiana and that man at Notre Dame, they've, they've taken over athletics as far as Indiana. Well, when, 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 when the Purdue job opened up recently, yeah. all the Fagery, Baker, and Daniels lawyers were putting their resumes <laughs> together because they thought they'd it's be part next. part of the condition of the job. That's right. Interesting. Thank you. Jeff, My pleasure. You Great much. to be with really you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.